Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Grand Junction Sentinel. My name is Linda Chambers. Uptown in downtown. Western Colorado Community Foundation opens new center for philanthropy in renovated building by Nathan Deal. In a quarter century of operation, the Western Colorado Community Foundation, WCCF, has grown exponentially, but only recently did it secure a space to reflect that growth. The foundation, which focuses on connecting nonprofit organizations and causes with interest, interested donors, ended 2022 with $145 million in managed assets and saw its managed assets increase 30% from the previous year. However, until late February, the WCCF was still operating in cramped quarters it had rented on the fifth floor of the Alpine Bank building downtown, often having to bust through walls and add more space ad hoc as it hired more staff. The WCC couldn't even host its own board of directors meetings, as the board is composed of 16 members, and the only meeting room the foundation had could only hold 12 people. WCCF President and CEO Ann Wenzel said the WCCF finally began looking for a new space determined it would need about 10,000 square feet and considered building or renovating a space. Wenzel said the foundation was offered a couple of undeveloped sites by the Colorado River, adding to the activation of that area of town sparked by the riverfront at Los Colonias and bolstered by the upcoming riverfront at Dos Rios. That forced us to move forward with our process a little more quickly, trying to ascertain what kind of growth projection we were going to be on, how much money we have, how many grants we were going to make 10 years out, what kind of staffing needs we would have 10 years out, and then that would drive the space planning needs, Wenzel said. However, After considering those riverfront opportunities, as well as other opportunities along the city's major arterial roads, the WCCF board decided that remaining in the downtown area made the most sense. And fortunately, the perfect space was about to become available, catty corner from its Alpine Bank space. Center for Philanthropy The former Roper Music Store at 128 North 5th Street was purchased about five years ago by Brian Collins, the president of Dallas-based Equus Capital. Collins gutted and renovated the space over the course of three years, transforming it into a desirable downtown space. The WCCF eventually moved to lease space in the building, giving it 9,300 square feet of space on three floors. Now, the WCCF has 18 offices, four meeting rooms of various sizes, and ample room for a variety of events such as donor gatherings, donor appreciation events, networking events, communication forums, fundraising training for nonprofit organizations, board meetings, and community education events. 
It also features a hotel office space for visiting foundations and nonprofit leaders from the Front Range and around the state when they're visiting town. The WCCF calls the new space its Center for Philanthropy. We're close to the banks. We're close to the accountants and lawyers. Our donors come downtown to do lunch and to do business. We're right there in the heart of things, Wenzel said. One day, we walked in this building and the basement and the main level were available for lease. That space wasn't big enough, but we were very interested in the space and found out the second floor was going to be free up. So we realized all of a sudden that the space was in a perfect location for us. It would be big enough once the tenant on the second floor moved out, and that's when we got a feeling about this particular facility. The WCFF's new digs feature all the trappings of modern offices while maintaining the character of downtown Grand Junction, with plenty of large windows allowing natural light to illuminate the center televisions on the wall meeting rooms, a modernized brick interior, and pressed tin tiles gracing the ceilings. Once we decided we wanted to stay downtown and we found this lovely building, we realized how much the building characterized our organization, Wenzel said. We talk about being grounded in the past, the donors who helped start us and have left gifts and whose shoulders we stand on. That's our foundation, grounded in the past, but modern and looking to the future, flexible and nimble to respond to current community needs. That's what this organization does, and we feel this building exudes that. New digs, new dreams. Wenzel believes WCCF staff have already seen increased efficiency after moving into the Center for Philanthropy reinventing their workflow and processes, converting to a new database, and capitalizing on having proper meeting spaces. She also said the WCCF wants to create a public exhibit space on the ground floor that celebrates the Foundation's work and mission, acknowledges nonprofit organizations, and declares monthly Nonprofits of the Month, and highlight the effectiveness of philanthropy on the Western Slope. This space might also include artwork that celebrates the spirit of philanthropy and the spirit of giving. One reason the WCCF would include such an exhibit space is that, according to Wenzel, despite the Foundation's initiatives such as suicide prevention work and supporting Mesa County Valley School District 51's Lunch Lizard program that provides meals to students in the summer, it still sorely needs more public visibility so it can be even more effective. One of our organization's taglines is connecting people who care, our donors, with causes that matter, the great nonprofits working on issues from basic needs, housing and food, to services for at-risk youth and elderly, arts and culture, the environment. We're a connector. We're a hub, Wenzel said. We identify needs and we gather resources, which are usually cash, but sometimes stock or real estate. People in the community who want to give back, give us assets, and then we direct that out in the form of grants and scholarships. 
When people can see the impact of what their gift can do, they get more excited. They feel more engaged and frequently they give more. Then it's one big spiraling circle of growth and impact and giving back. WCCF Community Outreach Director Teddy Gillespie said that WCCF has tripled its managed assets since 2015, increasing from $50 million to about $150 million in an eight-year span. She said this increase essentially demanded that the WCCF find a more fitting, visible space. That just shows you the power of when you make impactful and strategic investments with your donor's money. It does have the power to show people how you can potentially solve or at least address in a very meaningful way some of the issues like hunger, Gillespie said. The lunch lizard is a perfect example of an issue in the community with lots and lots of kids going without meals, especially when their school stops serving in the summer. To strategize and come up with a solution with our nonprofit partners is the beauty of coming together. Giving us more space gives us more room to grow. And as we grow, the investment of the community grows. There are several photos with this um, article. The first one is the Western Colorado Community Foundation has moved into its new location at 128 North 5th Street and uh, in that downtown Grand Junction. You have a, a small view of an office. The next one is the um, office uh, entrance, the, uh, uh, the former Roper Music Building, uh, which now has spacious meeting rooms off the reception area. Um, it's a beautiful, uh, large open space for the reception area. And then the, the front of the building, which uh, could mean, uh, you could think of the Roper Music Building. The last picture is, a, is the last two pictures, uh, is one of, the, one of the largest meeting rooms, several of the new meeting rooms. And then at the, uh, the, the two people, we have a picture of Teddy Gillespie and Ann Wenzel enjoying the extra meeting space. Migrant Smuggling Boats Capsize, Eight Die, by Elliot Spaggett and Gregory Bull, the Associated Press, San Diego. Eight people were killed when two migrant smuggling boats capsized in shallow but treacherous surf amid heavy fog, authorities said Sunday, marking one of the deadliest maritime human smuggling operations ever off the U.S. US shores. A Spanish-speaking woman on one of the Panga-style boats called 911 Saturday night to report the other vessel overturned in waves at Black's Beach, authorities said. She said there were 15 people on the capsized vessel and eight on hers. Coast Guard and San Diego fire rescue crews pulled bodies of eight adults from the water, but fog hampered the search for additional victims. Recovery efforts resumed Sunday, but no additional bodies were found. Survivors may have escaped on land, including the woman who called 911. Authorities did not know her whereabouts. San Diego Lifeguard Chief James Gartland said rescuers found the two boats overturned in shallow waters when they arrived. Surf was modest, with swells around three feet, but skies were foggy and black. 
That area is very hazardous, even in the daytime, Gartland said at a news conference. It has a series of sandbars and inshore rip currents. So you can think that you can land in some sand or get to waist-high, knee-high water and think that you're able to be safe to exit the water, but there's a long inshore hole there. Sorry, there's long inshore holes. If you step into those holes, those rip currents will pull you along the shore and back out to sea. Black's Beach is about 15 miles north of downtown San Diego in secluded area not far from the popular La Jolla or La Jolla shores. Its reputation for some of the best breaks in Southern California draws many surfers. Hundreds of maritime smuggling operations occur every year off California's coast and sometimes turn fatal. In May 2021, a packed boat carrying migrants capsized and broke apart in powerful surf along the rocky San Diego coast killing three people and injuring more than two dozen others. Smuggling off the California coast has ebbed and flowed over the years, but has long been a risky alternative for migrants to avoid heavily guarded land borders. Pangas enter from Mexico in the dead of night, sometimes charting hundreds of miles north. Recreational boats try to mix in unnoticed with fishing and pleasure vessels during the day. South of the U.S. border, there are many secluded private beaches with gated entrances between high rises with magnificent ocean views, some only partially built because funds dried up during construction. Popolta, Popotla, a fishing hamlet where narrow streets are lined with vendors selling a wide variety of local catch, is favored among smugglers for its its large sandy beach and relatively gentle waves. At least some of Saturday's victims were Mexican, according to the consulate in San Diego, but how many was unknown. Illegal crossings have soared under President John Biden, with many migrants turning themselves in to Border Patrol agents and being released in the United States to pursue their cases in immigration court. A pandemic rule scheduled to end May 11th denies migrants a chance to seek asylum on grounds of preventing the spread of COVID-19, but enforcement has fallen disproportionately on Mexicans, Hondurans, Guatemalans, and El Salvadorans, because those have been the only nationalities that Mexico agreed to take back. As a result, people of those countries have been more likely to try to elude capture knowing they are likely to be expelled under the public health rule, known as Title 42 Authority. Authority. Mexico recently began taking back Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans under Title 42. Pay hikes could be on the way. Elected officials on the Western Slope could see large raises. By Charles Ashby. Elected officials in 11 Colorado counties, virtually all of which are on the western slope, would see pay raises anywhere from 8% to 97% under a bill nearing the governor's desk. House Bill 1139 would increase pay for commissioners, treasurers, assessors, coroners, sheriffs, and clerks by moving the 11 counties into higher categories that determine their annual salaries. The bill cleared the Colorado House on a 62-3 vote last month, 
and the Senate on a 28-7 vote Friday. All of the no votes came from Republicans. Delta County, for example, would move from uh, a 111-B category to 111-A, giving all elected officials an 8.3% pay raise, but not until they are re-elected or someone new is elected to, to those posts. As a result, and based on 2023 pay levels, Delta County commissioners, clerk, treasurer, and assessor would go from earning $81,465 a year to $88,253, while its sheriff would increase from $105,834 to $114,654. Pay for county officials automatically go up with each new election cycle, so those amounts would be higher in 2024. Elected officials in Oray, Eagle, Route and Montezuma counties would see even higher increases, as much as 20%, for commissioners, clerks, assessors, and treasurers, along with a 27% hike for sheriffs. Coroners in several of the counties would see even higher pay increases, up to 97.5%, but that's partly because they would go from part-time positions to full-time ones. Other counties to get the raises include Archuleta, 8.3% raise. Saguache, 8.3%. Pitkin, 9.1%. Los Amos, 10%. Summit, 20.4%. And Grand, 34.4%. One of the sponsors of the bill, Senator Cleve Simpson, Republican from Alamosa, said many of the counties want the change because of changing demographics in their respective counties. Summit County Commissioner Elizabeth Lawrence testified before the Senate Local Government Committee last week when the bill was unanimously approved, saying that while the county only has about 30,000 residents, that number can boom to as high as 150,000 because of skiers and tourists. Our population is not reflective of what we deal with, she told the committee adding that she was recently re-elected and won't personally benefit from the increase in pay. That means we have to have law enforcement and services, plowing, etc., in order to handle 150,000 people on any given day. Inflation in the county is the worst in the state, so we've had to give raises to our staff in total of 23%. Archuleta County Manager Derek Woodman and Route County Commissioner Timothy Corrigan said the higher pay allows the counties to attract experienced candidates to elected offices. It's resulted in most of our elected officials, if not all, making less than some of their deputies and assistants, and it creates a disincentive for logical succession planning, Corrigan said. For instance, our newly elected sheriff, who was the undersheriff, took a significant cut in pay upon his election, under the bill, Route, Eagle, and Summit counties would move into the highest category along with the largest counties in the state to 1-A commissioners in those smaller populated counties would earn $131,701 under the bill, which still has to go back to the House for a final vote before heading to the governor. 
By comparison, Mesa County, which is considered among Colorado's 10 largest counties, is four levels down at 1-D. The newest Mesa Commissioner, Bobby Daniels, earns the most because she was recently elected to that post, making $101,308. Newly elected Clerk Bobby Gross and Assessor Brent Goff, along with re-elected Treasurer Sheila Rayner, make that same amount. CDOT, excessive speed to blame for most crashes in Glenwood Canyon by Cassandra Ballard, the Glenwood Post Independent, Glenwood Springs. The Colorado Department of Transportation has been assessing crashes in Glenwood Canyon and along Interstate 70 to figure out the main times, causes, and locations of each incident. What they found was that all of the crashes in the canyon were due to speeding. Meanwhile, 22% of canyon closures were due to collisions with commercial motor vehicles, CMV, according to Elise Thatcher, CDOT's Region 3 Communications Manager. In order to assess how often CMV crashes lead to closure, we cross-checked multiple data sets, Thatcher said in an email. CDOT reviewed closure data that our system captures and as well as crash data from Colorado State Patrol. Earlier this year, CDOT originally reported 197 partial or full closures with at least 70 of them involving CMVs. After assessing and cross-checking data, their data set showed lower numbers. In the final findings from canyon closures between January 30th, 2021 and January 30th, 2023, from Dutzero to West Glenwood, there were 179 collisions that caused a partial or full closure in the canyon, and those and of those, 39 were CMVs. We also reviewed photo archives to confirm which crashes in the canyon included a CMV, Thatcher wrote. This review requires many hours by more than one team, but leads to more accurate data. From the data gathered, CDOT can work with the Colorado State Patrol to direct convoys through the canyon during the most dangerous road conditions. CSP has been cracking down on speeders and CMVs violating the left lane restriction. Although CDOT found that CMVs were only at fault for 22% of the canyon's closure, there are the ones that creates the, they are the ones that create the longest and most expensive closures for the canyon. The top three contributing factors in crashes along the western slope, I-70 corridor in Garfield, Eagle, and Summit counties from January through March were speeding, lane violations, and following too closely. Quick tips from CDOT include drive the speed limit, Keep more space to the front and sides of your vehicle, more than you think. Don't drive distracted or impaired and curb your emotions to keep from getting aggressive on the road. On March 2nd, Glenwood Springs City Council discussed language it wants to send to state legislation for law changes that might help crack down on offenders who are creating canyon closures. Counselor Tony Hershey who is also a district attorney for Garfield County, suggested bigger penalties for speeders. He said mandatory jail time for CMV drivers might be more impactful. Encourage an increase in points and increase in fines, and then encourage the district attorney's office or the prosecutors throughout the I-70 corridor, the 5th Judicial, 
to impose jail time. Then these guys are going to learn. They have to come back here. They have to serve 10 days in jail, Hershey said. That's painful. Future health care workers? A group of approximately 60 School District 51 high school students participated in the Community Hospital Health Care Career Day last week. Students attended several presentations, including learning about radiology from Brian Bowl. Uh, the, uh, there's a photo of that. Then donned surgical gowns to follow fictitious patients as they received care after a car accident caused by a possible fentanyl overdose. The students saw how the patients were treated, starting with a simulated radio call about the accident, all the way through treatment, surgery, and autopsy. And there are two photos by Scott Crabtree of the students. Um, the one is with uh, Mr. Bull, and uh, the other one is them putting on their surgical gowns. This week in the legislature, Legislature by Charles Ashby. Denver. Last week, Republicans did their best to tr at trying to filibuster two gun control measures introduced into the Colorado legislature by Democrats. One to place a three-day hold before being allowed to take possession of a purchased firearm and the other to add more professionals who can request an extreme risk protection order also known as the Red Flag Law. Both won preliminary approval. This week, those two bills are to get final votes in the House and Senate, respectively. Today, the Senate Transportation and Energy Committee is to hear HB 1137 dealing with net metering on solar gardens. Tuesday, the House Health and Insurance Committee is to discuss HB 1227, a measure that would place more restrictions on pharmacy benefit managers. Wednesday, the House Judiciary Committee is to debate several bills related to judicial discipline. Thursday, the House State Civic, Military, and Veterans Affairs Committee is to hear SB 36, that calls on disabled veterans to apply for homestead property tax exemptions through their county assessor's office rather than the Colorado Department of Veterans and Military Affairs. Next week, a House committee is to hear a bill introduced by Senate Jan Senator Janice Rich, Republican from Grand Junction, that died but was reintroduced as a new measure, HB 1208, which would offer teachers a tax credit for using their own money to purchase school supplies for their students. All floor action and committees can be watched or heard on the Colorado Legislature's website at leg.colorado.gov. Check that website to see which measures are available for remote testimony and how to register to speak. Local lawmakers can be contacted at rick.taggart.house at state.co.us, matthew.soper.house at state.co.us, mark with us in m-a-r-c dot catlin, c-a-t-l-i-n, 
www.house.state.co.us elizabeth.velasco.house.state.co.us janice.rich.senate.state.co.us cleave, C-L-E-A-V, like in Victor, E, dot Simpson, dot Senate, at state, dot C-O, dot U-S. Dylan, D-Y-L-A-N, dot Roberts, dot Senate, at state, dot C-O, dot U-S. And Perry, dot Will, dot Senate, at state, dot C-O, dot U-S. SpaceX, or 10, returns by Marcia Dunn, AP Aerospace Writer, Cape Canaveral, Florida. Four space station astronauts returned to Earth late Saturday after a quick SpaceX flight home. Their capsules splashed down in the Gulf of Mexico just off the Florida coast near Tampa. The U.S.-Russian-Japanese crew spent five months at the International Space Station, arriving last October. The astronauts had to deal with a pair of leaking Russian capsules docked to the orbiting outpost and the urgent delivery of a replacement craft. Led by NASA's Nicole Mann, the first Native American woman to fly in space, the astronauts checked out of the station early Saturday morning. Less than 19 hours later, their dragon's capsule was bobbing in the sea as they awaited pickup. That was one heck of a ride, Nan radioed after splashdown. We're happy to be home. Plan to rename Lake Lanier, Lanier on hold by the Associated Press, Gainesville, Georgia. Federal officials are pausing a plan that could lead to new names for Georgia's Lake Lanier and Buford Dam after locals objected to changing the monikers of landmarks now named for Confederate soldiers. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers issued a statement Friday announcing the pause pending further guidance from the Department of the Army. U.S. US Representative Andrew Clyde, a Republican who represents much of Northeast Georgia, said he called the Corps of Engineers Friday to express opposition. He said the pause is a tremendous victory and that renamings would have attempted to rewrite history, impose massive burdens and costs on our community, and create unnecessary mass confusion. Lake Lanier is an enormous reservoir spanning almost 58 square miles, 150 square kilometers, and impounding the Ch- Chattahoochee River northeast of Atlanta. It was named for poet Sidney Lanier when, he, when it was built after World War II. Lanier served as a private in the Confederate Army and later wrote Song of the Chattahoochee, a poem about the river. Buford Dam is named after the nearby town of Buford, which takes its name from late Lieutenant Colonel Algernon Sidney Buford, who served in the Virginia military during the Civil War. The Georgia town is named after Buford because he became president of a railroad that helped create the town after the war. Hours before announcing the pause in the renaming process, the Times of Gainesville reported that the Mobile District of the Corps of Engineers sent out a news release and unveiled a website seeking input and aiming to pick new names by year's end. 
Notable minority. Anti-Trump GOP voters mostly loyal in 2022, but not entirely. By Hannah Fingerhut, Hannah Fingerhut, Associated Press, Washington. Representative Lauren Boebert's grip on Colorado's 3rd Congressional District didn't seem in question heading into last year's midterms, but in the end, the congresswoman, who gained a national reputation as a combative member of the Make America Great Again movement, won re-election by just 564 votes. This was supposed to be a slam dunk for the Republican candidates. The way the district is designed said Don Corum, a former state senator who unsuccessfully challenged Boebert in the GOP primary last June. Boebert's near miss was emblematic, emblematic, I'm sorry, emblematic of the difficulties Republicans confronted in 2022 and may face again in 2024, while former President Donald Trump holds a tight grasp on much of the GOP base. There is a notable minority of Republican voters who do not consider themselves MAGA, MAGA members. Most of them, as faithful Republicans, backed GOP candidates in 2022. AP vote cast shows. Still, the extensive national survey finds these Republicans made up a larger percentage of those who opted not to support a candidate in House races. A sliver of them showed their opposition to Trump for a second time, backing Democratic Joe Biden for president in 2020 and Democratic House candidates in 2022. In a political climate where competitive elections are nationalized and decided by narrow margins, neither party can take these voters for granted. Democrat Adam Frisch said he knew there was a fairly unique opening for a more conservative Democrat to connect with Colorado voters who did not like Boebert's aggressive political style. I spent most of my time trying to convince people I was a safe enough choice, not just to leave the ballot blank, but actually vote for a non-Republican for the first time ever or in a really long time, said Frisch, who has already announced he will run again in 2024. The findings suggest Democrats, too, may need to be wary of the messaging against MAGA Republicans, whom Biden hammered repeatedly before the November elections and is poised to do again in 2024 campaign. Most of those who don't identify with the movement don't seem to find that compelling. Voters who do may may be eager to revert to a Republican candidate who represents their traditional conservative values. Republican strategist Alex Conant suggested GOP candidates cannot count on those voters so long as Trump is involved in politics. But 2024 can be different. There's no reason that the Republican nominee in 2024 can't put together a coalition that includes Trump's base and moderate Republicans and independents, he said. Conant and others pointed to examples of Republican governors, Ron DeSantis in Florida, Mike DeWine in Ohio, and Brian Kemp in Georgia who were able to do that in 2022. In Ohio and Georgia, for example, the two governors outperformed Republican candidates for Senate who were endorsed by Trump. DeWine earned nearly 390,000 votes more than J.D. Vance, who won an open seat, and Kemp received 200,000 plus more votes in the general election than did Herschel Walker, who failed to unseat a Democratic incumbent in a later runoff. According to VoteCast, 10% of Republican voters who don't identify as MAGA Republicans 
voted for Democratic House candidates nationwide, compared with 2% of those who embraced that label. Overall, 4% of Republicans backed Democratic candidates. That percentage swelled in competitive races for Senate and Governor, where far-right candidates were on the ballot, including as many as 13% of Republicans in Arizona, 16% of Colorado, and 18% in Pennsylvania, and 11% in Michigan. The Lincoln Project, a conservative group that staunchly opposes Trump, has targeted this voting block in elections. Co-founder Rick Wilson said it's a narrow pathway, but a meaningful one, to electing pro-democracy, anti-extremist candidates, one that he thinks has expanded since 2020 because of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Still, partisanship can be sticky, Wilson said. And traditional Republicans value checks and balances in Washington, driving disaffected conservative voters to support Republicans as an offset to Democrats. Votecast shows most Republicans voted for Republicans, even if they did so with reservations. Republicans who don't identify with the MAGA movement and decided to back Republican candidates mostly say they didn't consider Trump, good or bad, when they voted. Only about half are positive in ratings of Trump himself, but most are favorable toward the party and say the GOP tends to try to do what's right. About two-thirds of them say they voted to show opposition to Biden. There where I am. What choice do we have, said GOP strategist Rick Tyler. There are many in the Republican Party who would love to not vote Republican but they can't vote Democrat because they don't believe in where Democrats want to take the country. That may have helped some Republican candidates in Republican-leaning districts oust Democrats who were elected in the Trump era. In November, then-State Senate Jen Kiggins defeated two-term Democratic Representative Elaine Luria (coughs) in a district centered in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Just two years after a Democratic presidential candidate carried the city for the first time since 1964, Kiggins overcame the self-proclaimed MAGA candidate in the Republican primary and campaign operatives pointed to Kiggins as a disciplined candidate focused on kitchen table issues. Her message also tied Luria to Biden and then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat from California, as Luria herself campaigned on her role on the House Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and and called Kiggins an election denier. Kiggins shied away from explicitly repeating Trump's false claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen, but she refused to publicly reject them. Non-MAGA Republicans are more likely than MAGA Republicans to say that Biden was legitimately elected president. They also are more likely to say they decided over the course of the campaign which candidate they would back, as compared with knowing all along. Back in Colorado, Karen Davis, 58, was a lifelong Republican until a few years ago when she changed her voter registration because of the alarming rhetoric of the party, particularly the far right. Her vote for Biden in 2020 was more of a vote against Trump, she said. And last year, she backed Frisch over Boebert. 
What's really sad is you're not excited about any of these candidates, said Davis, who runs a flooring business in Grand Junction, Colorado, with her husband. If the Republicans could get a candidate I was excited about, I would absolutely vote for them. To her, that's, <coughs> excuse me, somebody who's a fiscal conserv- conservative, but a moderate in every other way, Davis said. They can't win me back with Donald Trump. And there are two, uh, there are three photos with this article. The first one is of former President Donald Trump speaking at the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC 2023, March 4th, 2023, at National Harbor in Oxon Hill, Maryland. And uh, people attending the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC 2023, sing the national anthem during the opening session at the National Harbor in Oxon Hill, Maryland, Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. And the last photo is... Mara C. Jans of Rio Rancho, New Mexico, laughs as she looks at T-shirts for sale at the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, in Dallas, August the 4th, 2022. And these all were submitted by the Associated Press. That article was from the plus section of the Daily Sentinel, and the rest of the articles that I read will also be from the plus uh, section. Series. Off wins. Youngkin scores some legislative wins as he eyes White House by Sarah Rankin and Michelle L. Price, Associated Press, Richmond, Virginia. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who quickly shot from political newcomer to potential 2024 Republican presidential candidate, kicked off his state's legislative session in January by telling lawmakers that he wanted to get more done and to get it done faster. As the dust settles on his second session, working with Virginia's politically divided General Assembly, the former private equity executive has earned a series of wins, including measures taking a tougher stance against China that his allies say could help him in a possible White House race. But many of his legislative priorities, such as a rush for more tax cuts, are tied up in budget negotiations. Others, including proposals to restrict abortion access or tighten penalties for criminals, were stymied by Democrats controlling the state Senate. Youngkin is among the Republican governors eyeing the White House who have hoped to gain political momentum after presiding over productive legislative sessions this year. In Florida, for example, Governor Ron DeSantis plans to use a session that began last week to advance conservative priorities. But the task has been harder for Youngkin because of Virginia's divided legislature. He got a lot of solid singles up the middle, a couple doubles off the wall. Big home runs? Not yet, said Chris Saxman, a former Republican member of the House of Delegates who runs a nonpartisan organization focused on the intersection of Virginia business and politics. Youngkin is still working to advance his priorities at home over the coming weeks. He can propose amendments to bills that will be taken up in April, but he also has made a point to keep a national profile, as seen in his appearance in a primetime town hall Thursday night on CNN. He has returned to traveling outside the state and has done nothing to shut down chatter about a possible 2024 run, giving indirect answers about his plans while saying his top priority is his current job. 
Virginia law prevents him from seeking a second consecutive term as governor. His four-year term began in January 2022. That's where my focus is right now, and I believe there was an enormous amount of work yet to be to do in Virginia, Youngkin said at the end of an education-focused town hall. The national media appearances and continued travel, including a trip to New York for donor meetings, have led to criticism from an occasional Republican and form from Virginia Democrats that he is focused on higher office at the state's expense. The Democrats who control the state Senate spent the session priding themselves for being a brick wall able to thwart many of the priorities of Youngkin and House Republicans, including efforts to enact a 15-week abortion ban. On some issues, however, they found common ground. The first piece of legislation the governor has promoted with a formal bill signing is one that aims to make it easier for licensed or experienced workers such as barbers and cosmetologists to move to Virginia and get straight to work. Youngkin told reporters that the bill, along with a union and business-backed measure streamlining now-scattered workforce development programs, under one agency were among the measures he most pleased he was most pleased to pass see pass his administration has won praise from consumer advocates to for the role it played in a com compromise measure that would restore some oversight to let regulators who set the rates and profitability of dominion energy the politically powerful company that runs the state's biggest monopoly electric utility the governor is expected to sign a bill that would adopt a new definition of anti-Semitism in state code that supporters say will help the Virginia help the Virginia track and combat hate toward the Jewish community. He also celebrated the passage of several bills that aim to address the threat from China, including a measure that would prohibit foreign adversaries from purchasing or otherwise acquiring agricultural land. Early in the session, Youngkin disclosed that he scuttled an effort by the state to land a large electric vehicle battery plant, an in initiative between Ford Motor Company and a Chinese company that is setting up in Michigan instead. The governor's administration labeled the project a front for the Chinese Communist Party that would raise national security concerns. Tom Davis, a former Republican congressman from Virginia who thinks Youngkin is well positioned to make a presidential run, said the Ford plant would, could help him in the campaign. As Republicans, especially presidential contenders, have taken an increasingly hard line against China in recent months, the move kind of immunizes Youngkin from potential political attacks over his name as co-CEO at the Carlisle Group when the private equity firm did business with Chinese companies, Davis said. Youngkin's call for an additional $1 billion in corporate and personal income tax cuts beyond the approximately $4 billion he signed into law last year is tied up in budget negotiations that could drag on for months. So is his proposal for a major boost in mental health spending and an expansion of childhood literacy and school innovative innovation initiatives. Youngkin's proposed abortion bill went nowhere. 
though Virginia drew national attention, including from the White House, after his administration testified against a bill that would have prohibited police from issuing such search warrants for digitized data about women's menstrual cycles. Youngkin's office said the bill, which had passed the Senate with bipartisan support, would hinder law enforcement. The measure did not make it to the governor. Speaking to reporters on the session's last day, Youngkin cast Democrats as intransigent on common sense issues, including a bill he sought that would have allowed prosecutors to to bring murder charges against drug dealers if a user dies of an overdose. Youngkin and his wife, Suzanne, through her advocacy work, have made combating the threat of fentanyl a vocal priority. The issue is one that has become a key focus of Republican politicians and presidential contenders. Recent polling has shown Youngkin, the first Republican to lead Virginia in over a decade, with relatively strong approval ratings in a state Biden won by 10 percentage points. But Democrats say Youngkin's policy priorities are out of line with voters and will help them flip the state house and keep the Senate in November when all 140 legislative seats are on the ballot. Glenn Youngkin has given us a great gift. He has given us issues to run on and define the difference between electing Democrats and electing right-wing Republicans, Susan Swecker, chair of the Democrat Party of Virginia, said recently. Davis sees the political divide another way. He said having Senate Democrats throw cold water on some of Youngkin's priorities would probably only help him if he became a presidential candidate, becoming a perfect foil for his conservative policies. They aren't fights that hurt the governor on the national basis, Davis said. I think they've probably advanced his stature on a national scale for the Republican nomination. And there is a picture of Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. Another onslaught. As atmospheric river exists, another awaits to hit California. By Nick Corey and Stephanie Dazio, Associated Press, Watsonville, California. Wet, miserable weather continued across huge swaths of California on Sunday as an atmospheric river that caused major flooding flowed eastward and as a new system threatens the region with another onslaught of rain, snow, and gusting winds as soon as Monday night. The National Weather Service said the next torrent could exacerbate the severe flooding that overwhelmed the area in recent days, causing a levee failure from prompted, that prompted widespread evacuation Saturday in farming communities near the state's central coast. The next system is not expected to bring as much rain, but forecasters cautioned that considerable flooding could occur in lower elevations from additional rain and snowmelt that could swell creeks and streams. Definitely prepare for some more flooding impacts. The ground is very saturated. We're already seeing some impacts from some light amounts even today. National Weather Service forecasters Eleanor Duavetter said, The rain and snow is expected to extend from central California to Oregon, as well as northern Nevada. Of particular concern are the expected strong winds. The Weather Service is predicting wind gusts of up to 50 miles per hour, 80 kilometers per hour, in some places. 
which could potentially snap tree branches and damage power lines. But the new storm is moving fast, meaning it won't have time to dump as much rain. Over the past two days, more than 20 inches, 50 centimeters, of snow fell at measuring station in the Sierra Nevada, and the new system is expected to pack even more. The snowpack is now nearly twice the average, the highest amount of snowfall in about four decades, according to UC Berkeley's Central Sierra Snow Lab. The snowpack stores much needed water for a state seeking to emerge from a three-year drought. As much as a, as a foot, 30 centimeters, of rain fell in Big Sur area of the state over a two-day period, weather data. data. Authorities suggest that residents have a plan in case further evacuation orders are issued. Across Monterey County, more than 8,500 people were evacuated Saturday, including roughly 1,700 residents, many of them Latino farm workers, from the unincorporated community of Pajaro. We are still in a disaster response mode, said Monterey County spokesman Nicholas Pasculi on Sunday. He said the county is staging high water rescue teams around the county and opening more shelters in anticipation of more flooding as the new storm rolls in. The flooding has impacted drinking water facilities in Pajaro. Officials said residents should not drink tap water for cooking or drinking until further notice. Highway 1, also known as Pacific Coast Highway, is closed at several points along Big Sur as well as near Pajaro due to flooding. The atmospheric river known as a Pineapple Express, because it brought warm subtropical moisture across the Pacific from near Hawaii, was melting lower parts of the huge snowpack in California's mountains. Because of the massive flooding over the early weekend, more than 50 people had to be rescued by first responders and the California National Guard. One video showed a Guard member helping a driver out of a car trapped by water up to their waists. The extent of property damages was still uncertain, but Luis, Luis Alejo, a chair, a ch chair of the Monterey County Board of Supervisors, sought help from the state and federal governments. The need will be great. We'll take months for our residents to repair homes, he wrote in a tweet Saturday. Governor Gavin Newsom was de declared has declared emergencies in 34 counties in recent weeks, and the Biden administration approved a presidential disaster declaration for some on Friday morning, moving to expedite more federal assistance. President Joe Biden spoke with Newsom on Saturday to pledge federal support for California's emergency response, the White House said. Weather-related power outages affected more than 17,000 customers in Monterey County late Saturday, according to the Governor's Office of Emergency Services. By late Sunday morning, about 7,000 were still without electricity. The Governor's Office said it was continuing to monitor the situation in Pajaro. The Pajaro River separates the counties of San Santa Cruz and Monterey. Officials had been working along the river's levee system in the hopes of shoring it up when it was breached around midnight Friday into Saturday. Crews began working to fix the levee around daybreak Saturday as residents slept in evacuation centers. Built in the late 40s to provide flood protection, the levee has been a known risk for decades with periodic <clears throat> excuse me, signs of significant trouble. In the 1990s, the levee was breached several times, prompting flooding that led to evacuations and disaster declarations. 
emergency repairs to a section of the berm was undertaken in January. A $400 million rebuild is slated to begin in 2025. This week's storm marked the state's 10th atmospheric river of the winter, storms that have brought enormous amounts of rain and snow to the state and helped lessen drought conditions that had dragged on for three years. State reservoirs that had dipped to strikingly low levels are now well above the average for this time of year, prompting state officials to release water for dams to assist with flood control and make room for even more rain. And there are two photos. A boy and a man ride bicycles through the floodwaters in Watsonville, California, Saturday, March 11, 2023. Uh, the, there are, the next photo is two people and their dog are rescued from floodwaters in Watsonville, California, Saturday. And the last picture is cars are partially submerged in floodwaters in Watsonville, Saturday, March 11th. These are from the Associated Press. Thank you for joining us for the Grand Junction Sentinel. My name is Linda Chambers. AINC presents your Low Vision Resource of the Day. Today we would like to highlight the Independence Center. The Center provides services to people with disabilities, their families, and the community. Learn more by visiting www.TheIndependenceCenter.org or calling 719-471-8181 or by emailing info at TheIndependenceCenter.org. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. You're listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado.